0: To be honest with you is we were engaged and still are conversations every morning before going to work conversations every night coming home the american people are are blown away by what we were telling them um well what That's they're right. hearing on these podcasts they're like i can't even, and we're talking retired service members so much so that several retired general officers reached out to congress too and said listen you guys have got to pay attention to what these guys are saying this is significant we think this is a significant departure where we should be going and a radical impact to our readiness is probably not acceptable
1: lieutenant colonel scott duncan is an f-35 pilot and f-35 instructor pilot and as the Tactics and Integration Department Head of the Marine Corps' Operational Test and Evaluation Squadron, VMX one uh, was recently Director of Operations in an F-35 unit that was the largest F-35 unit in the Defense Department. Uh, he was also an instructor pilot at the Navy Fighter Weapons School, also known as Top Gun, and was fully qualified in the F-18 Hornet, the F-18 Super Hornet, and F-16 Fighting Falcon while he was there at Top Gun. He has over 2,800 flying hours and over 300 combat hours. Scott has a Bachelor of Science degree in Construction Engineering Management and a Master's degree in International Relations. He and his wife and four children currently live in Yuma, Arizona, where he's stationed. Scott, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thank you, Matt, for having me. And and I'll start off with the obligatory statement that these will be my personal experiences that I'm happy to share, but they are not uh, the opinions shared by the Department of Defense or the United States Marine Corps.
1: Got it. Uh, Scott, you've had a terrific career. I've only read the smallest fraction of uh, bona fides that you bring to the table as a combat aviator, and uh, your experience is extensive, but you and literally hundreds of other qualified uh, pilots, both fighter pilots, tanker pilots, helicopter pilots, and so on and so forth across our defense department, find yourselves at a tough crossroads uh, at the moment. So I think it's important that we get right down to business and ask you uh, at at the top of the hour, what did you think of Top Gun? Have you seen it?
0: Oh, you know what? My kids begged for me to see it. And uh, (laughs) yes, I reluctantly went. I said reluctantly, of course, I was happy to go, but I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, it was great to realize uh, we know the guys, the gentlemen that did the flying for it. That flying is very representative of the mission sets we exercised every single day there. Um, I think the only one piece that we would love to have captured is the fact that uh, the instructors there are some of the most uh, humble and approachable folks you can imagine. And uh, so that is the one piece that we would love to have uh, indelible, just an understanding that those young lieutenants and captains uh, really are a young junior officer corps, and they are at the leading edge of tactics development. And it was it's humbling to have been a part of that organization.
1: What did you think of the uh, cockpit footage?
0: I thought it was fantastic. I mean, I again, you know, I'm a little bit probably more into my history, but when I was a young man, I didn't grow up wanting to fly or wanting to even be in the military. And it wasn't until later in life when I had to set an objective for myself and it was flying jets off of an aircraft carrier that started that. So anytime I see that cockpit footage, uh, I it does harken back to memories of, of having very similar type flights and something we, we, we thoroughly enjoy in the weapon system.
1: You know, I captured your flying hours. How many uh, aircraft carrier landings do you have?
0: That's a great, you know, I should probably be more familiar with some of these statistics. I think it's about, uh, I think it's around 300 or so. I had two combat deployments on the USS Enterprise. I think it it ended up being about 300 carrier landings.
1: Well, I thought I'd tease you up up front uh, about Top Gun (laughs) just a little bit and and say we're getting right down into the business. But, you know, that's the first question, obviously, that pops into a lot of people's mind. I saw the movie as well. thought it was fun. And, uh, you know, there were moments, um, you know, I didn't fly for the Navy or the Marine Corps, but I. I know what it looks like from a cockpit. And my palms were sweating at certain uh, points oh, in the yeah. show because they did a phenomenal job capturing the look and feel and almost smell of the inside of a cockpit. And uh, yeah, I thought it was real fun.
0: Yeah, man, I think um, same here. We, now, we were grateful for you.
1: Well, so tell me, I'm going to tease this out a little bit more about your personal background. So what was it in the end that then inspired you to be uh, a fighter pilot? Uh, Do you have um, a pedigree or do you have a a family history of uh, military service?
0: Yeah, so actually we don't have a family history of military service. And um, it was not until you reach a little bit further back. So my grandfathers were both in the Navy. And that actually I think influenced me to go in the Navy as far as aviation was concerned. Uh, But I did not grow up as a young man very familiar with their backgrounds or history at all. I mean, beyond them, you have to reach back several generations to get any more military history in our family, which is stuff we've kind of unearthed now having a military member. Um, But it really was not. I did not grow up wanting to fly airplanes. I did not grow up. um, I was given a phenomenal uh, childhood. Don't get me wrong. So I was a product of my own demise when I was younger. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I finally said, you know what, I need to I need to have a clearer direction in life. And when I established that direction, um, really the impetus of that was a a, a, a strong relationship with the Lord and a, a springboard into Christianity. And when that happened, I said, you know what, we're going to I'm going to set a goal for something and I'm not going to stop until I either get there or fail. And uh, when I harkened back, I thought, man, you know what, I would love to fly uh, airplanes off of aircraft carriers. And that's kind of what started our military transition. But it wasn't long after that, Matt, that uh, flying was no longer the objective. It was a true uh, as we spent more time in the Department of Defense, more time with military members, um, it was a much, uh, much higher, a much more transcendent goal. And that was to to serve the people of this country, to take note, to defend the Constitution. Those things then became to the point where when we transitioned from the Navy to the Marine Corps, uh, we were willing to even make that transition because of what we thought was a better culture, even if it meant uh, we were not going to get an opportunity to fly. And we were just fortunate enough to be able to to be able to do that and continue flying.
1: Talk to me about that cultural piece. Uh, that's an interesting thing for me to hear you say, a better culture. Uh, what was it about the old culture? Uh, are you able to share specifics? I mean, I, I get that um, you're not separated and wearing a beard like me and you're still <laughs> active. But I mean, is it, what, what can you say about the cultural aspect that uh, was appealing to you in your transition?
0: Oh, you bet. So that was pretty early on in my career. And again, it's funny because I transitioned to the Marine Corps and I've spent almost my entire Marine Corps career with the Navy, very intertwined with the Navy on their carriers, teaching at their fighter weapons school. Very fortunate for that. Uh, The culture piece specifically was uh, the the individuals that we encountered in the Marine Corps with our first exposure to the Marine Corps at College at Oregon State University. Um, we just had a, a kin relationship to the way they viewed life and the way they viewed service. And it was not an adjunct to other things. It was a wholesale representation of the individual. And so from from my personal standpoint, I thought, you know what, those are the kind of individuals I'd like to be around. Um, now, granted, I did not see a comprehensive look in the Navy, but my short time in naval nuclear power, uh, I had some very phenomenal folks over there, and I had some other folks who really probably did not want to be there. Uh, When I was exposed to the Marines, um, again, the initial look at Oregon State University, every one of those Marines wanted to be there and they were interested in being the best. And that was the kind of culture I wanted to be surrounded by. And it's funny because I've subsequently, worked with the Navy at their weapons school with those exact type of individuals. So it is not relegated to one service or the other, um, but that was part of the culture that was attractive to us uh, in making a transition from the Navy to the Marine Corps.
1: Wow. So you've got now, is it just over 18 years of, uh total active service
0: we're coming up on 18 years and 10 months right now
1: 18 years 10 months um i recently interviewed uh first lieutenant john Bose. uh i think you know john uh he was in the f-16 student pilot training pipeline so he's at the opposite he's at the at the front end of a career that uh, he had hoped to pursue and you're kind of uh re- relatively speaking, at the tail end of a, a career, whether you want it uh, to be the, the tail end of your career or not. And uh, if you haven't, for the viewer or listener, heard John Bow's interview, I'd recommend you go back and take a, a listen to his interview, because there will be some overlap between that interview and some of what I'm hoping to talk with Scott about today. Uh, but But similar to John, Scott, you find yourself in a position right now uh, I'm sure that you didn't anticipate a year ago or at any point in your career. Talk to us about uh, where you're at uh, with uh, the current DOD uh, vaccine mandate policy and what position that's put you in. Talk us through that story wherever you think is uh, appropriate to start. No, you bet, Matt.
0: So uh, a couple of things too. I did have an opportunity to listen to that interview with John. It was fantastic. He's a very well, well-spoken gentleman. Uh, there's some other folks who have been uh, offered up the opportunity to speak, and, and they've taken advantage of that opportunity to really get the message out to the American people. And to be totally honest with you, when you have a gentleman like myself who was at the tail end and have achieved some of the goals that I aspired or set out to achieve, my heart really breaks for those young aviators uh, that had those goals in mind and are being robbed of those opportunities. Uh, and John is obviously not alone. There are are many and uh, we do say hundreds um, and I say hundreds because it's a more conservative approach. I think if you really took a look at the numbers or we had situational awareness to them, it's quite a bit higher. I, I'd always prefer to default obviously to the more conservative numerical approach, but.
1: Sure. Hey, Scott, let me interject on that note um, and then pick right back up where you said where we stand right now. But um, one of the things I talked about with John was a uh, fighter pilot shortage in the Air Force. I don't, I'm not aware of uh, specific numbers for the Marine Corps or for the Department of the Navy. Is that something you can talk to? Are we in a good position? Are we in a healthy position as far as our readiness, the readiness of both of our aircraft as well as uh, our pilot numbers? Or are we also suffering a shortage in the uh, Navy?
0: Uh, so that's a great point. Um, we are suffering a shortage in all services. So it was not a hidden fact at all. The Department of the Navy came out and said, we, we cannot get enough aviators. And I was, talk specifically from the jet community, and we cannot get enough what they would call TAC air pilots. Uh, the Marine Corps has the same or suffers from the same. Uh, from an aircraft rating standpoint, however, the F-35, obviously, you know, coming off the lines of newer aircraft, um, one of the problems we have is the fact that the iron is coming to the fleet, and there are not people in the form of manpower, that's pilots, also enlisted maintainers, qualified to stand those squadrons up on a timeline that was developed. Uh, So I think the most recent number, and again, I'm going to round up for this number, uh, would say that Marine Corps F-35 manning is at about 45 percent. We've been actively trying to pull levers, and in fact, several years before this, and trying to come up with creative ways that we could open up pipelines to help improve that number. Uh, The requirement and the demand is just outpacing any kind of production number we currently have, and you know back to your point matt too i mean i don't I don't want to see that on behalf of the Department of Defense I mean at the end of the day, even when they tell me to to go away, I'm still uh, a patriot and, and an American citizen, and I want a strong department of defense, and that gap is staggering
1: How, how many f thirty fives are there in the marine Corps?
0: Oh, that's a great question, um and you would think someone in my position would know that answer Matt <laughs> <laughs> uh, i, I uh, you know what. I'd say probably, uh, man, this is a wild guess. Uh, I think about 100 to 150 maybe would be our total inventory right now.
1: And and how many were in, you know, you were the director of operations. That's my Air Force term. Maybe it's the same in the Marine Corps, but for the largest F-35 unit uh, in the Defense Department, how many F-35s were in that unit?
0: Oh, yes, sir. So right now, so that was the unique piece. I will call it the operations officer and chief instructor pilot. Those are the two primary roles I served there. Uh, again, slight nuance concept is exactly the same. Um, but there were 30 aircraft approximately at any one given point in time. And those were comprised of uh, United States Marine Corps assets as well as the United Kingdom assets.
1: And, and there were over 400 personnel in that unit. Both, both a correct. combination of Marine Corps personnel as well as uh, UK pilots.
0: Mm-hmm. That's correct. And not only just pilots, maintainers, uh, oh, right. individuals. Yep. So we basically took uh, the United Kingdom's first squadrons and birthed them out of that squadron environment. Mm. Uh, and it led itself to the very first tactical units, their very first fleet replacement squadron, uh, which is basically the type of squadron that John is associated with now in the initial training stages. Uh, and then since then has been a successful deployment of HMS Queen Elizabeth.
1: Okay. Now, uh, I know I've I said I'd interject briefly, but we've already yep. lost uh the bubble here. So now go back to your story and, and tell us uh where things rest now and, and um talk us through that a little bit.
0: Oh you bet. So Matt, one of the things that was kind of important is uh and you mentioned this a little, a little bit, um We had concerns well before the mandate began to manifest itself. And so an important part of kind of the uh, lineage, if you will, of how things have progressed is that we felt compelled to inform leadership that there were problems and we saw problems coming. And if this mandate was going to come as it ended up uh, coming to fruition, that we had a specific stance and this is the stance we were going to take. And not only were we going to take this, but we were going to take a responsible approach to seeing it changed. Um, So that came well before the mandate ever existed. In fact, uh, one of the gentlemen that we uh, had a relationship with or began a relationship with because of a book that he published back during anthrax, um, that conversation springboarded six to eight months before the mandate ever actually came down in the form of an order. Um, So the Secretary of Defense, uh, he passed an order for the mandate, and again, for us specifically, a vaccinated status is not important. If somebody is making a decision on their own, I, I it would encourage them to do that. And if they believe that they've been given a truthful accounting of the information, then we support them in that. It was the mandate very specifically. So we um, at, every squadron was given an opportunity to have kind of their own timeline to some degree. And so as soon as the squadrons order the requirement to be vaccinated or at least have received the first shot, Uh, was when we had to have our religious accommodation submitted. Now, um, an important part of this journey, if you will, was I was ignorant of that process. And I had to learn what that process was, not only for myself, but also to the other thing we told the command is that we were going to support people who shared the same conviction. Uh, So, you know, trying to network with folks uh, and then very quickly identify who those people are and how you can serve and support them in this so, one, learning what that process is all about, how to even do it, how to do it administratively correct. Uh, we submitted that accommodation and helped many others do the same. And then when that came back denied, um, we actually put in our appeal, and then we have an opportunity as Marines to appeal. Go ahead, Matt, I'm sorry. Tell me the
1: time frame again. So when you submitted the religious accommodation request, what month are we talking about?
0: So we're talking uh, early to mid September of twenty twenty one And then the denial came back at the end of October in 2021.
1: That was when the DOD was trying to figure out how are we going to handle all of these uh, religious accommodation requests that are coming in. And I think there was a lot of coordination during that time period um, about what a standardized response might look like. Because it seemed to me that um, across all branches of the military, the response was the same and they came flooding in. Uh, The answer is no. You know you're gonna but but as i mentioned in john bow's interview i have a i have a friend who uh is atheist who submitted an ethical veganism uh accommodation request that was approved i don't know if he's the only one or if there were others but um too bad he didn't know about that one sooner uh but you know you got to be honest
0: well the fascinating part about the the, uh the processes and
1: this is what is, is highlighted i
0: mean the the Constitution protects these uh, religious discussions and the right to uh, religious uh, religious context and decision-making in that context. And the reason why I say that is because you could have an individual like an atheist, and what he has to prove, what his burden of proof is a burden on his conscience. And so I think it was fascinating, too, and this may be jumping the gun just a little bit, but the highest echelon of leadership that we could appeal to in the Marine Corps Uh, That individual saw fit to say that in his estimation, uh, which I think is a fascinating estimation, uh, it is not an undue burden on our conscience. And I'm not aware of another human being that can make a statement like that. And I think that that is probably at the root of some of the of the issues. Um, But back to the timeline real quick, some of these things are going to be important. Uh, We wanted to make sure we also exhausted every administrative action. So. Um, And I think this is a thing that you highlighted previously from uh, discussions I've heard you have. um, But, for example, before our appeal, we went ahead and submitted a request for early retirement. Now, for us, uh, because we were told by the monitor, he said, listen, you cannot resign. One, you cannot resign because of this topic. You're specifically forbidden to do that. And then second, you can't specifically resign because you have uh an obligation and that obligation is because I took uh, the aviation bonus to take me to the nineteen years and I had every expectation to continue. I was a slated commander at the time and was very much looking forward to continuing uh and achieving those goals and looking forward to others. Um so at the time though we said, okay, listen, we can't resign. Um is there anything else? Clearly the values of the institution are going one direction and the Duncan family values are going somewhere else. Um and as a result, then we were going to say, if you you know I, I can leave the service. If that is of interest and such extreme interest, uh, we can do that via an early retirement request. That was a valid request. Uh, there is a process for that, and we exercised that process. Um, in that process, it was fascinating. They said, uh, you cannot, you are denied, Well, um, I shouldn't say denied. Let me be very specific on my terms. The endorsements were recommended for disapproval, and they were recommended for disapproval because I was too valuable to the institution mm. to lose as an F-35 pilot. Uh, however, <laughs> they would have no problem continuing with the administrative separation process, of course, again, and just highlighting kind of more probably what this is truly all about. Um, well, let so me, we, let we, let we me the,
1: interject again here to, to point please. out this is worth, uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to interject. I'm trying to work on this, but um, no, please so much do. of what you're sharing. You know, I just heard uh, of another pilot, uh, an A-10 pilot. Uh Who I happen to know and uh, was a phenomenal commander but uh, uh is now a colonel uh has actually over twenty years uh, mm-hmm. time in service and requested an early retire or requested retirement before her commitment was up because uh, she is opposed to the same uh mandate and she was told the same thing that you were, and it was that she is mission critical And therefore, we will not allow you to retire. However, you now have an order that within 10 days, this just happened a few weeks ago, you will get uh, the vaccine or we will force you into separation. And and you you think about that for just a moment. Um, You know, we can't let you go on your terms, but we are determined to let you go if you're not compliant. Uh, That's a really terrible position, in my opinion, that we're putting our service members in. But the more important question, I think, for... The American people, uh, if they haven't already thought of it, is where does it leave us as a military as far as military readiness is concerned? Uh, you've heard in now two interviews uh, the uh, unfortunate numbers of um, uh, readiness numbers, the numbers of pilots who are qualified to execute the mission in these uh, various uh, platforms. And uh, we're, in essence, it seems to me, shooting ourselves in the foot when we make these kinds of uh, paradoxical decisions. They're putting themselves in a really hard spot. And I would think that after months and months and months of data, uh, pushback from some of the service members, some of what we've come to understand about all of this, and I'm trying to be careful how I use my language because there's multiple platforms on which this shows up and I'd like to keep them going. But um, you'd think that the DoD at some point uh, months ago had to have had hard discussions behind closed doors and saying, look, are we really going to dig in our heels and force out many, many thousands of our service members, some of whom are in absolutely mission-critical career fields? Or are we going to say, you know, we made a mistake and then, oh, by the way, live with hundreds of thousands of people who this, this was also against their conscience and their view as well, but they've already chosen to go ahead and comply. And now, now what are the consequences of that? You know, so, <laughs> rewarding those that dug in their heels like yourself. and uh, But I've talked to a number of service members who have regretted their decision to be compliant as they see others like you standing up. So anyway, I I risk uh, again, derailing us, but um, there are others like you who have requested retirement. That retirement has been denied and they're being now forced nevertheless out of the service if they choose not to be compliant. What will you do if the grid goes down? How will you survive without food, water and heat? Introducing One Sunrise, the first of its kind in massive on-demand power, instantly available at any residential, commercial, or remote location. Power your home, your office, your EV, your RV, your farm, your cabin, your bug-out bunker, your glamping weekend with the family, or all of them. Bring instant power to any situation, anywhere. Non-toxic, cobalt and lead-free, as well as fire-resistant. One Sunrise mobile power stations are made to run in over 100-degree temps or at negative 20. For when the grid goes down, there's One Sunrise. Visit onesunrise.com to learn how you can prepare today for no power tomorrow.
0: Yeah, there's another part of that too, Matt. When this first started, and it's easy because we don't have an appetite for history, like, I think we probably should. So you lose sight of what happened at the very beginning, and you lose sight of some of the narrative that existed at that time. And uh, we worked, we have members 24 years, 25 years, 29 years of service. And those individuals were told, you will not retire. You will be administratively separated. I had specific commanders, and they were told, and, they're, and literally their shot deadline was a week after their already scheduled change of command, and they were in retirement. They're like, no, absolutely not. You will be fired. You will be removed. And so, again, just back to the, you know, coercion has a legal definition, Matt. And when you're having things along those lines happen or take place, I cannot tell you the volume of people. And we've asked leadership to consider this, like, listen, um, the sheer volume of people that took this uh, because it was a they made a business decision with their body. And in fact, that was how it was presented to me by one of our state legislatures here. And and he said specifically that he advocated that his son do that for business considerations. And he looked at me square in the eye and said, I think that is at the heart of the problem. And I I said, I absolutely agree. Um, So I think, you know, it's it's heartbreaking to see these young Marines who said, listen, I was told, and not only that, but I was told this surrounding the narrative of the shot. At the time, I was told to take it for these reasons. Uh, That did not transpire. That is no longer even the prevailing medical narrative. And as a result, I really have questions about what is taking place right now and what I may be susceptible to in the future.
1: Well, I don't blame you. Uh, So so tell me, in that vein, why did you choose not to get the, the vaccine?
0: Well, you know, Matt, it's that it has so many tenants to it, and I think um, a lot of times individuals would like to isolate it down to one mechanism, and specifically, if we end up talking about this later, and I'll just tease it out just a hair right now, uh, the fact that uh, the Department of Defense is advertising that they have FDA, well, they're going to say, quote-unquote, FDA-approved, uh, comern, comern, either comernity or comernity, I apologize, I don't uh, know the, uh, the exact um, uh, pronunciation, but... Uh, They're saying that that was in existence. And for some individuals, if that was the only thing that they were holding out for, uh, then that's available to them. And so obviously they have made that aware. And that does not satisfy the questioning that is re- uh, resolved around emergency use authorization and the legality associated with forcing that or mandating that. So I think there's really four major tenants, Matt. Um, one of them, obviously, is the constitutional infringement wholesale the fact that a service member does not relinquish human rights, natural rights, uh, natural rights, um, and we took an oath, again, to the Constitution, I know you're very aware of, and uh, that oath is what we believe we are exercising uh, in our position, and our stance right now. Yeah. So there's the constitutional, and I'm going to actually break out constitutional from the legal, and then I'm going to say medical efficacy, and then also all of that is encountered or encompassed in the religious conversation. And when it comes to the religious conversation, Matt, uh, I was able to detail that out with many tenants as to why I think this was wrong. Uh, many of them were misrepresented, unfortunately, in the rebuttal statements to my response. I had to correct them in subsequent statements and rebuttals saying that um, I know that they had mentioned that they did believe they did their due diligence in reading through my appeals, but uh, they either read it too quickly or they had a misunderstanding of what I said. And so we had to make sure to correct that on their behalf. Um, But those are the the primary tenets, I think, right now. And for a lot of people, too, you know, they would prefer a Christianity that is held in its own specific silo. And for us, it is a comprehensive worldview. And so even if you got past all of the scientific discussion, the medical discussion, the legal discussion, the constitutional infringement, like all those rights, you got to the point of religion. uh, The reality is that even with all those things, if they were satisfied, which I would argue that they are not it comes down to fundamentally a truth versus a lie. And I'm not saying in any way, shape or form that every person or every leader uh, falls into that category. In fact, when I I broadly talk of leadership in the Department of Defense, uh, it is not everybody. And just like, you know, and there are wonderful, wonderful leaders and they were in different positions. They had different understanding. Uh, Like you said, a lot of them are vaccinated, um, and that's understandable. A lot of them didn't put the thought or have uh, awareness of the thought, and part of it is because they had a vaccine immediately available to them, and they took it just like they would every other. And that was not the case for several of us.
1: We just had a bit more time, and uh, um, we committed it to to prayer and a a different approach. I'll tell you when, uh, so before I separated in the fall, about the same time you filed for your religious accommodation request, my last day on active duty was the 1st of September, 2021 and mm-hmm. it was just at that time now i had been on leave for several weeks uh, up until that point but it was about that time that a mandate was coming down by way of policy yep. and um i had been in command through may of the same year and there were surveys that were going around now the the vaccine uh, had been available members were starting to be vaccinated but no mandate had, had yet uh, been in place and i i want to say and i might be off uh by a little bit, but my recollection is that uh we were directed to take surveys of our of our members of our unit uh to determine who was interested and who wasn't kind of a thing so that we could get mm-hmm. them scheduled and slated for the vaccine but there was probably uh this is a this is an honest assessment between thirty and thirty five percent of my unit um, was at once the moment the the vaccine was available interested in getting in line and taking it, and there were over 60% that uh, were either on the fence or not sure they ever wanted to do that. Well, you give it a month and see that there's now a pressure campaign underway. I think this was all still before there was an actual mandate. Uh, 10 and 20 and 25% more uh, started to receive that. Uh, I had started to hear rumors that some were uncomfortable with their decision, but they figured, well, you know, I'm not gonna die on this hill. But there was still a large chunk, over a quarter of our service members at that point. Before the mandate came out, said no, not me. Yep. But once a mandate came, you started to see the dominoes fall, and you know it ended up being about five percent, and then on down to two and three percent of our service members. I think, as far as the last I've heard, probably still haven't complied with uh, the policy. So, at uh, which you know two, th- two to three percent doesn't sound like a big deal, but then again, you have to consider our retention rates, our ability to recruit uh, new service members, you have to consider yeah. where we're at health wise, as far as our own, our readiness and lethality at the moment, two uh, to 3% actually ends up being a tremendous, uh, uh, burden to impose upon the force.
0: Yeah, no. So Matt, you're absolutely right. I would actually, um, uh, I think at the time, if I had to draw or snap a chalk line, it was 40%, 40% of the service at the time of the mandate in the, in the Marine Corps, and that is the that is the narrative around that shot and its mandate, it, it really in its in, in its only true, pure sense. In other words, on its own merit, that discussion probably rested with 40 percent. Um, to your point, uh, and I think Marines are very comfortable coming to me because obviously uh, we made our position known uh, and we said we were not going to hide behind uh, those things. And they have routinely uh, the predominant discussion point is the fact that they did it. To keep their jobs when it came down to hey there's a mandate coming okay a lot of them said well clearly there's already a marine corps way a separations manual that would allow you you're uh, physically unfit now at this point you have a reasonable disagreement it's honorable discharge and they would be willing to move on with life so it wasn't until the far more punitive you may go to jail you may have article 92 you may go to you know like those sorts of things that were it's it's been predominantly removed from the table now but those were the initial parts and it's parts of the discussion because nobody knew i mean a dishonorable discharge uh you know back to a transition we had to take the last winter and really develop what it would look like worst case scenario um for some significant impacts to the family in our future uh and then the best case scenario and develop all those lines and then actually begin to action on them as far as pave the way towards a transition to civilian life so i think it's important to understand that Once those and again, the religious accommodation, I mean, uh, leadership, you are at the mercy of uh, the personality of your leadership. And the reason why I say that is you have a wide variation in how folks are handled. And that's because those individuals are very serious lack of standardization, which is one of the problems. And we may even talk about some of the administrative separation uh, recommendations as well as the board of inquiries, you have everything from general and honorable conditions, discharge for a perfect sterling career after 16 years with a 35 pilot. And you have somebody who is Nope. Article 92 has been dismissed. It was considered an unlawful order. There's no way that you comply with an emergency use author or use authorization. And so having that kind of variation, even within the same service is a significant challenge for leadership. And we've asked them to please consider.
1: So there are, in your knowledge, Other F-35 pilots, even uh, who who you're aware of, who are facing similar consequences or who have been grounded for their decision. Now, now you've not been grounded. That's
0: correct. So I have not been grounded. Uh, And then that goes back to the discussion, Matt, as far as uh, your immediate leadership and chain of command. Um, In a lot of ways, leadership had pushed it down to the tactical level of how it would be exercised. And so um, the only infringement on my flying occurred uh, with, so I was asked to fly with the squadrons on the air station. And part of that is because uh, I'm an instructor pilot and they don't have enough instructor pilots and they need instructors to come fly and do simulator events. And I've been fortunate enough to lecture on behalf of the the Marine Corps' weapons school, even at my role at VMX-1. Um, Now, VMX-1 and MOTS-1 and some others have different chains of command, and as a result, I was able to fly and support them in that capacity. However, one of the other individuals that actually owns the F-35 squadrons on the air station uh, in that chain of command had decided, nope, Uh, very early on, um, he made a statement that he did not want unvaccinated folks. Well, it started out flying. you could not fly. And again, I think it's important to understand that we've been told we are a a threat, a health threat to ourselves, a health threat to our community, and a health threat to our Marines. Um, So flying a single-seat jet is apparently still a health threat. And as a result, they said, nope, you cannot fly, but you can, they would still let us do simulator events and lectures and things along those lines. I think after about six weeks to eight weeks of that, they said, ah, that that may not have the best optic. And as a result, they finally came back and said, no, you just can't support those squadrons, period. So uh, again, that squadron said, we're going to, you know, we will be happy to fly in until order to stop. And they were, in fact, ordered to stop. Um, it is, to my knowledge, there's no written correspondence. It's all phone calls and, and things of that nature to, to make that uh, take place.
1: Now, is there a lingering stigma over the head of Lieutenant Colonel Scott Duncan in the eyes of your peers or leaders? Or how have you been treated by other service members? Your, let's start with your peers, I guess.
0: Well, I will tell you, this is where I may diverge just a little bit from some of the other folks you are going to have uh, an opportunity to interview. Um, I have been incredibly fortunate as far as how I'm personally handled. Uh, part of that, too, though, is I've, I do shelter myself from the comments of other individuals on things like social media. You know, I've had the obligatory, he should be shot, he's a coward, all that kind of things like that. But none, none from my peers, none from my mentors, none from uh, people who know me. So, you know, I mean, people are going to make statements like that. And I understand. Um, but I have been treated with nothing but respect and dignity from uh, I've been given a voice. I've been given an opportunity to exercise that voice. And I've told leadership what our problems are. And then from uh, specifically my peers, uh, generally speaking, the, the prevailing comments is, man, I, I tell you, Um, We are here to support you in any way we can. And that comes from people. And those peers have made a
1: different decision than you.
0: They have. And so that that comes from everything from a I don't agree with your decision. However, I support you as a person Um, or a or what's I think more heartbreaking often is the um, I actually agree with you and um, I just am not going to do anything to, to stop it. So that comes from command leadership often, uh, and it's it's over time. It has really uh, been challenging to watch uh, those individuals go through that struggle, and then also too to have people that simply say like, you know what, like I, we're I, there's nothing I can do. These are out of this is out of my hands. I agree with you. I don't agree with it, but I'm just again, I'm I'm not going to do anything. And, and back to your point before. You know, a lot of people end up, even when this first came down with a mandate, a lot of individuals said, "I'm I, this is wrong. I'm going to stand up against this. And then again, when push came to shove, um, that was not the case. And again, this is not, uh, I want to be very careful here because a lot of those individuals made different decisions. I don't disagree with them. I mean, we're talking about livelihoods being very dramatically impacted. And so uh, I do not want to be sitting in a position of judgment on the decision that they made um what is heartbreaking is to watch those who felt like uh in fact I I I don't know a marine that there. well actually I know one out of all of them um that actually did it because he believed it was the best medical decision uh, he had been offered and to watch others be like I had no choice I did not want to do this I and I was forced to do this uh and I did it for the sake of my family which I think is a valid argument and um but that's the only reason why I wanna not comply with this. And you know, Matt, you may, you may not wanna, if you don't mind on this one, I, I just uh, is a frequent discussion where people have said, you know, they don't want you, or why would you choose this hill to die on? And I would absolutely say, man, when I look back, I, there's no way in the world I would have chosen this hill to die on. Uh, but I also think a more comprehensive way to view it is that it's just not one hill on your way to another. Um, This was the the COVID mandate the shot mandate was a manifestation of a much larger ideology. I just think we're simply on the hill. It's and so for us it was the the line needed to be drawn somewhere, and that is something that most people have struggled with. And our response to them is, where where will you draw the line if you really believe there is an issue or problem? And generally speaking, that has caused a, quite a bit of a
1: retrospective look. Well, thanks for sharing that. Are, are you aware personally or by hearsay of any general officers who are in the same boat you are, who have made the same decision?
0: Oh, no, not, not to make the same decision. Um, I personally know some, several general officers, uh, and the ones that I know again, Matt, I've had, I've been very fortunate in my entire career. In fact, um, the long list of achievements is because I've been supported by phenomenal teams. I'm not a special mm-hmm. individual. Um, and those general officers, even some of them who are like, you know what I, I support you as a person as a mentor as a friend um uh in some cases they're like i don't you know I don't have the same understanding that you do and, and i understand, i understand too i mean they're yep. we are high, we are hyper focused on this because uh by necessity, I would not expect a commander to be that way, and I would hope that they would not have to be unfortunately and they are um but no, I'm not aware of anybody in the same situation um but I am aware okay. of those who who do believe that there is merit to our argument.
1: I'll ask you a more sensitive question. Are you personally aware of, or have you learned by hearsay of any other pilots who have been grounded as a result of their decision uh, to, I'm sorry, let me be more clear about that because they made the decision to comply with the mandate that they've now been grounded because of health concerns or other anomalies that they've experienced? Uh, yes, Okay. So, um, yeah.
0: So and what what I will do
1: is uh, I know that's probably, sensitive and I, I don't want to yeah. press that, but
0: nope. And, and I think uh, because of the sensitivities, I'll leave them off. But y- you are correct. Um, mm-hmm. We've had everything and not only just pilots, we've had Marines, unfortunately, who have had uh, unfortunately now are facing uh, lifelong health conditions as a result and uh, it's not just marines that happened in local communities right
1: too. now talk to me about the path forward for you and your family given the context that you've uh, laid out is there you mentioned an appeal mm-hmm. that appeal has been denied that's correct when was the denial received
0: um the denial i you know it's kind of uh the timing was was very interesting um so i submitted the appeal in in early november Um, the, we had an opportunity to express some of our concerns, uh, specifically the impact of readiness, uh, in the form of Tucker Carlson. And it was the day after that, that we received our, uh, and so again, could be completely unrelated. Don't know that, uh, one way or the other, but it it, it came to our office the afternoon after that took place
1: my uh dismissal of my space force inspector general's complaint about critical race theory being taught at the base despite the president's executive order uh banning the use of critical race theory vocabulary my denial of that came back on january 7th of 2021 the day after january 6th of 2021 and it could be chance but um it was an unfortunate you know i wait they sat on that that through november december and january and um that was an election season tough time to file us uh, an inspector general's complaint that is uh, a highly politicized issue and it seemed as if um, that played into that decision but um i can't get in the minds of other people i can only weigh the outcomes that appeal was received uh i'm sorry the denial of your appeal was received uh okay, so it's that was now january
0: january 2022 that's when that happened
1: so it's been a half a year and since then you've been flying and and doing other things that you mentioned so where are you at now um as far as this whole process is there something that uh, the marine corps is waiting on from you are you waiting on some decision to be made by the marine corps or the defense department talk us through that and what the road ahead looks like
0: yeah you bet so what happened um well in kind of linear progression from a timeline perspective after the appeal denial came back, uh, the next step was we received a 3005 of formal counseling that came from my immediate, uh, the the commanding general of my immediate chain of command. And so that formal counseling uh, stated that on this date, you were given an order you did not comply with. On this date, you were given an order you did not comply with. On this date, you were given an order you did not comply with. The reason why I think that's important is because we've seen others that have gone to board of inquiries and they mount them together to say multiple violations of the same. So it's like being offered that same thing over and over again. Even though on the first one a religious accommodation was in process, so you should not even consider that. The second one an appeal was in process, so it should not be considered. Um, so that counseling, I had an opportunity to provide a rebuttal statement too, which I did, and I had an opportunity to again I did not rehash the religious accommodation request, but I did leverage heavily. Uh, the all the adjudication that had, several court rulings. So where the federal court has largely ruled, in fact, almost exclusively ruled on behalf of the service members. So I made sure to leverage uh, the discussion there uh, to ensure that it was not just my opinion, but the opinion shared by many others uh, to include a, a branch of government. And then after that got submitted, I was given a formal report of misconduct. And the report of misconduct said the same thing. It's an Article 92 violation, uh, failure to obey a lawful order. Uh, and it cited every instance that the order had been given to me. Um, I also submitted a statement, which I had an opportunity to do 10 days later. So that statement was written up, um, had a lot of the same discussion, but also had at each uh, opportunity, really, when I was given the formal order with appeal denial, um, I went to the clinic and just dialogue, or uh, cataloged what was available there, um, had interviews with the individuals that were there, again, not confrontational, just what, what is truly available to me at this time. Um And lo and behold, it was pfizer BioNTech, and Moderna, both under emergency use authorization and of an interest and note, mm. uh, they gave me the documentation that uh, I think, well, actually, I don't want to misrepresent who wrote it, but they gave me the documentation that gave them the authority to extend the expiration dates for everything that they had. So everything was labeled expired, mm. but they had been given some authority to continue to offer that. So I documented that as well in the statement. Um, so Mm -hmm. my understanding of the process is that the next thing we are waiting for is a date of a board of inquiry. So we have been told, uh, without reporting misconduct that we've been directed to show cause and that recommendation goes up, uh, and has to receive a couple of endorsements and then it will come back down if it is concurred with. And so it's in that process of getting routed up for those endorsements.
1: What's involved in that board of inquiry?
0: So the Board of Inquiry is is a challenge, Matt, and I'm glad that you kind of asked that question. And the reason why I say it's a challenge is you're, it's not, it is not a court of law. And I think one of the things that we would prefer is to have it be a court of law because the burden of proof is much more significant. So when you're at the Board of Inquiry, uh, it is an administrative process only. And they have been given the authority that they believe they have from the NDAA. That even though it was originally presented by Congress uh, as an honorable discharge only, I think it was the Senate that countered and said, nope, it can be honorable or general under honorable conditions discharge when you are removing members uh, for this in particular uh, thing for COVID and refusing the COVID mandate, uh, the COVID with the mandate. Um, The reason why I say the BOI is an interesting process is because it's only 51 percent and you have to convince those board members and those board members are comprised of service members. So when you have uh, we've been very fortunate, um, you know, we had to redefine success early on, Matt, uh, success in in the context of society we are in right now. And um, it has been good to see that service members at the administrative separation level, although I disagree with them being separated, um, were able to achieve and argue successfully for an honorable discharge, which I think it's fascinating that they're even having the discussion. Uh, of course, the separations manual has language that's loose enough to fit anything into really any category. But an honorable, a meritorious career um, with one blemish—not uh, only does precedent suggest that that should be the case, but you would clearly follow the order, and it would take you to a logical honorable discharge. Um, by way of example an administrative separation we just attended yesterday for a master sergeant who is two months from skill bridge and then skill bridge approximately three to six months so he he is retiring he already has an approved retirement date and they went ahead and saw fit to put him through a board of inquiry and he was voted uh separation and thankfully though he successfully got an honorable characterization of discharge now the separation may be suspended, and we may have some hope that he could make it to retirement. Uh, but again, the fact that that is under discussion is uh, is fascinating. Um, but the, the reason why I say that is the Board of Inquiry for us as officers is going to be comprised of uh, three to four members, and they are senior to you. And I believe there may be um, the requirement that they are outside of your chain of command. And with the government is going to present their evidence. Uh, for the article 92 violation and then we are going to prevent present defense uh we are going to have assigned defense counsel and then we are also going to bring with a civilian legal representation as well um to make sure they kind of defend our position there so again uh, we believe there's every reason to be retained uh and then in addition to that we also believe that if that is not the case uh, that there's nothing that warrants something different than an honorable discharge
1: well it's I don't know if ironic, um, it's a cruel irony if, if it is ironic, it's, uh, it it just is odd that you're being brought into judgment, so to speak for your decision and the people who sit on a board to adjudicate an outcome have all made a different decision than you clearly. I mean, none of them necessarily share your view. And if they do, they decided to lay that aside anyway, and make an entirely different decision. Do you have a good attorney?
0: uh i do matt in fact uh the gentleman is fantastic and he's involved in other civil litigation centered around this and not only that but he has a heart and passion for it so very excited we've had an opportunity to engage uh, with a lot of uh, lawyers and legal entities and uh, a part of the process in serving others that shared this conviction was to make sure that they were paired up with legal representation if they're desired as well so in the course of that we've met some phenomenal phenomenal
1: people let let me go here because i I think perhaps one of the most you know the information is critical thank you for sharing what you have i've put you on the spot you're willing to come on a show uh in spite of the fact that you um still wear the uniform of your country and you've got certain obligations that i very much appreciate you know you're not criticizing to be clear you're not criticizing your chain of command uh you're treating them with respect um whether or not some of them deserve it. But in, in your case, it sounds like um, you know, you've been treated respectfully. You're not criticizing the current administration. That's all off-limits under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Uh, as deserving of criticism, in my view, as they might be. So you're, you're doing things right, and, I, and you're sharing information. But perhaps one of the most important uh, things I can ask from you is to talk uh, to service members, because there are going to be a lot of service members who are going to hear this in the weeks ahead. Uh, some of whom, in fact, um, I'm guessing if they're listening to my show, many of them might be in the same boat you are. Um, And the show is growing pretty quickly. I think uh, a lot more service members, including senior leaders, are going to be hearing these interviews, especially if I'm not talking about the sun or the stars like I was in the interview that was released uh, earlier today. I I have a broad range of interests. But when I'm talking to military service members, yeah, you know, so what is it that what message would you like our service members to hear from you? Uh I'll say that generally and if you want to divide that up into you know your young service member who's at the beginning of a career or even our, our senior military leaders at the other end of their career. Uh what what are some of the thoughts that um you'd like to leave on record for them?
0: I'm very grateful for that question, Matt. Um The reason why I'm grateful for it is because uh, we, at some point, we also reconciled the fact that, uh, I mean, we did not have a desire to go out in a public sphere in this capacity. Um, However, we also recognized that life is not about me. And we had several young Marines, at least immediately, and then we were aware of several other service members who were facing a far more dire circumstance than we were because they did not have uh, the benefit of time. And as a result of that, when we finally realized there's nothing we can do, we have engaged Congress, we have done everything we could possibly do, um, we can't stop these service members from being discharged. And unfortunately, we're talking about the ones that were uh, probationary. So less than six years of service, you're going to get discharged, you're going to get a general under honorable condition. I think it's also important to understand that they labeled the misconduct as commission of a serious offense. And those are generally reserved for mm-hmm. felony conviction. I mean, that is not insignificant. So you, you can say all day wow. that yes, it's just an administrative procedure, but you're going to have to explain to some degree how uh, to every lawyer or to every uh, employer. I just finished up a couple applications to to uh, law school. I need to be l- loose with that. Just it's just a master of legal studies. But regardless, I had to make a comment mm-hmm. on there uh, to that effect. So the reason why I say that is is it is a broad reaching thing that you have to overcome as administrative hurdle. Um so my message uh, really to service members is that that is the reason and the rationale that we were willing to come out is say, you know what we the american people need to know and the other thing Matt to be honest with you is we were engaged and still are conversations every morning before going to work conversations every night coming home the american people are are blown away by what we were telling them um but what That's they're right. hearing on these podcasts they're like I can't even and we're talking retired service members so much so that several retired general officers reached out to congress too and said listen you guys have got to pay attention to what these guys are saying this is significant we think this is a significant departure from where we should be going and a radical impact to our readiness and it's probably not acceptable um so and we've been able to quantify that and and i know that you've been able to represent that information but the other piece matt to be honest with you i think from a serviceman perspective um i was fortunate enough to to write an article to the marine corps gazette it's a professional journal um, I submitted it for an essay contest, um, and it did not win. I'm sure it's because I'm a poor writer. However, um, they mm-hmm. were kind enough to say that uh, that they would like to publish it, and it's going to be published here in a few months. And the reason yeah. why I think that's important is the message, Matt, like you said, is it's not criticism. Um, I'm not asking anybody to, especially in the context of the Department of Defense as a uniform member, uh, to admit guilt. Because back to your previous discussion, you are only accountable for what you know. And the reality is, is a lot of people did not or do not know things and myself included. And the reason why I say that is, is one, the call to action specifically is it is not too late. Uh, We can stop this before several. I mean, I I think the I could firmly stand behind a number of 135,000 service members. We can stop it before those go away. The next piece is, okay. well, the fact is you're going to have people who made different decisions and they have been uh, treated very poorly. But most of the service members that I'm involved with that are in this process. matt still still want to serve and have a desire to serve and are willing to accept the difference in in uh, in decision and the difference in ideology. And the uh, the essay was written in that context. It's like, listen, uh, people who are willing to stand on a religious conviction, um, these are not the kind of people we want to remove. If we are really willing to espouse the maneuver warfare, then guess what? The medical information has changed. Whatever you want to call it. The science has changed. We have a better understanding mm-hmm. of the virus. Whatever you want to say, that's fine. And you know what? Now with new information, perhaps we should change the course of action before we make a very dramatic decision mm-hmm. and then suffer some consequences for it. So, you know, Matt, that's my, yeah, I, I, I don't think, um, I think some people would very much disagree with me on this one, but I do not believe reconciliation is out of the question. And I believe that um, there is a place with which even leaders who have prosecuted those uh, mm-hmm. can honestly take a look back now and say, you know what, uh, different information is available. My understanding, perhaps, is mm-hmm. different. And uh, and we can stop this now. And then we can also, I think, uh, really – compensate those individuals that have suffered as a result of some poor decisions.
1: Now, you mentioned a number. Excellent, excellent comments. Uh, you mentioned a number. You said you could confidently get behind 135,000. Uh, that same, roughly speaking, number came up in my previous interview with First Lieutenant John Bowes. Uh, I was blown away by that number, and here it is again. Um, I haven't tried to verify it, but I understand you guys are close to these issues, and, and you know what you're talking about, but that is just a remarkable number of people.
0: I think to your point, you know, you, when you say percentages, a little bit of the context is lost. And uh, I think most people often hear like, oh, the Marine Corps has got 3,000 non-adjudicated religious accommodations. Actually, I think it's a bit higher, but uh, so I think it's 3,000 service members we've lost so far in the Marine Corps. And we've been a bit more aggressive in removing people. So when you hear numbers like that, yes, I, I, I would not disagree, although I I believe every number of every person is significant. I would not uh, say that it's insignificant no matter who you lose. Um, but when you start to put the context and you start to flesh out the bones of it, that's a different discussion. And, yes, I was staggered, to be honest with you, because uh, for a long time, there was no confidence in reporting. The numbers were so wild. Uh, there was, you know, so few. And then you had numbers that you we're like, man, I don't know. I'm talking to a lot of folks. And these guys have got awareness. So the reason why I say I'm, I have confidence in that number is that, that is what Congress is reporting uh, Congress is reporting this to the Pentagon and as a result, uh, so I would say I've seen numbers higher than that. Uh, but again, you know, I don't have, uh, I don't have a real good backing on that. So I've seen several venues, multiple sources. I've seen that number.
1: I'll say this one more time too. And I said this, something like this in my previous interview with John, if you stripped away every other issue we were facing domestically or internationally as a country, strip away every one of them from, uh, what you think. Is or is not happening at a border? What you think is happening in the public education system? What you've come to learn about various radical uh, groups or entities in this organ uh, in in this country? Some of the um, interstate competition that you see on the news being reported, and literally a dozen other things. If you strip all of that away, and this is the only problem that you were aware of that was happening in your world right now, and it was that we're about to lose 135, potentially lose 135,000 service members many hundreds of our uh, experienced uh, combat aviators, that should be enough for you to be very concerned about uh, our ability to defend our our nation, uh, our ability to be ready to to wage and win wars, should they come knocking. Uh, And so while we're deploying service members to Eastern Europe and elsewhere in the world uh, in anticipation of a spillover of a conflict between Russia and um, Ukraine, for example, uh, we're also shooting ourselves in the foot. And you know, our, our senior military leaders and the Secretary of Defense, I'm speaking for myself, not, not for Scott here, uh, they're going to have to live with the decisions that they're making right now at this critical juncture in American history for the rest of their lives. But here's the unfortunate part. So are you. You've got to live with the decisions that they're making. Scott has to, uh, and all of us are going to have to live with these decisions, and they might have far greater reaching implications than uh meets the eye and i'll tell you uh there's a lot that meets the eye even at a glance when you hear some of this information being presented so i'm really grateful that you and some of these other uh, service members are speaking out and there are so many young service members young enlisted personnel for example have been in for two years or three years They're, they're not being invited to be on podcasts right now they're not being invited to be on shows and yet they live in a world in which they're facing the same problems many of them have families to take care of and so I'm sure they're grateful for people like you, Scott, who they see showing up on these podcasts and in the news to be a voice for them. Not everyone has a voice, but you've got a voice. And who doesn't think Top Gun is sexy, right? And so you're a perfect spokesperson uh, to, uh, to talk intelligently about what so many of our service members are both experiencing or they believe in. Uh, and don't have the opportunity to, to articulate themselves. Uh, and let me let me uh, add one more thing, and it's this, and then I'll give you the last word. Our military obviously needs men of integrity. Our military uh, needs men of courage. It needs uh, aviators who have experience. And frankly, there's a lot of other career fields in which uh, that experience is absolutely critical. And uh, you scott uh represent all of those things to me and i'm grateful that you're uh standing with your family and keeping your integrity intact and being a man of courage and of god uh there's not enough of that on display in the world uh and so it's good for the world to see that i give you the last word
0: well i appreciate it Matt. i think uh you set a very good example for all of us to be honest with you i was very grateful for the words that you penned uh, and very grateful for this time and opportunity uh, as far as the young service members, like you said, um, I was not, when it came down to it, uh, as a leader, because regardless of the capacity as a Marine officer, as a leader, there's no way that in, I, in good conscience, I could tell a Marine that the best medical decision for that individual to make was to take the risk associated with shot. And that's what it came down to, or that's one of the things that it came down to. And as a result, you know, obviously we lost the opportunity to command, um, but I do think that there is a time and place and that we do not have the uh, the solid foundation or rationale to remove individuals for this for these reasons. Um, so I think it also, too, Matt, it's a word of hope. You know, um, many of the things you hit on. And I say a word of hope because um, ultimately truth and good will prevail. There's no question about it. And uh, so we may be through a rough road, and I understand that, but uh, we've probably taken bigger licks, I think, in times past, and and we can do it again. Uh, So just want to be clear and sure that we are on the right side of truth in history, to be honest with you, Matt.
1: Well, great thoughts. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Duncan, uh, former Top Gun instructor pilot, uh, current active and qualified F-35 pilot. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. I've been grateful to get to know you a little bit. And uh, I think we'll be hearing more from you in the uh, uh, months ahead, despite your reluctance to be in the public spotlight. Uh, So thank you, sir, for your service. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate it.